0: Thank you. Thank you, Mike. And I'd just like to thank ISUSA for uh for for organizing uh this. I think this is a fun opportunity to to talk about uh the recommendations. Hopefully people can can see the slides. Um so just wanted to welcome everyone. Um uh, I, I know there have been a lot of questions even before the chance to have this 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 course to talk about some of the the new uh the new prevention recommendations. Um, I think, I think some of the the topics that people were surprised or particularly interested in, um, were some of the recommendations about, um, what PrEP regimens to preferentially use. In particular, um, the elevation, uh, for the first time of, uh, the recommendation of, uh, injectable PrEP, um, should it get regulatory approvals um and have availability. So that'll be good for us to talk about. We'll also talk more about TAF FTC and its use as a as a prevention agent. We'll talk a lot about the elevation of 211 or on-demand PrEP um, uh, uh, to uh to a first line uh uh recommendation with equal footing with daily oral TDF FTC for MSM. Um we'll talk about some changes in our recommendation to testing and monitoring Intervals, um, some issues around persistence and retention, around recommendations for adherence and persistence support, which I think are are, are particularly challenging um, with with oral prep preparations for for certain um, a little bit of insight in transgender um, uh, uh, pharmacokinetics for prep agents and uh we specifically enunciated some recommendations for trans feminine individuals and we've gotten some questions and of course a lot of interest about trans masculine uh, individuals so wanted to make sure we had some time to talk about that and then you know if somebody acquires hiv despite being prescribed prep what one does in terms of choosing um an initial uh, ART regimen and whether there's, there are insights that can be gleaned from the amassing, uh, data from TDF and TAF, um, FTC prep. So, um, so those are the sort of the topics that we're gonna sort of be going through today. I wanted to sort of begin and sort of kick off, um, the discussion by actually opening up a poll question to our audience as a, as a Kickstarter, um, uh, to, to this conversation. Um, hopefully I can get the slides to advance to our poll question. Um, this is our, our first poll question to kick us off. I hope people are okay with being interactive here. Um, and what do you prescribe for your first, uh, your first line agent for PrEP? Um, and uh, some might take issue with the fact that we don't specify a uh, population here. So just for sake of argument, let's say it's for um, MSM just to kick off the discussion. So hopefully people have a audience response question that popped up on their screen um, and people can vote. And then uh, when the number of responses um, Go down a little bit. Stephanie can share with us the results. Okay. So, um, just over about half of people, um, said TDF FTC, either on demand or daily. 15% of you said, I don't prescribe PrEP and 29% said, uh, they would essentially immediately go to TAF FTC and no one said something else. So Jean-Michel, you know, I'm, I'm curious, you know, um, what are you doing in, in, in Paris right now? for first-line
1: PrEP? Well, uh, hello, everyone. Yes, so, you know, we use uh, mostly PrEP for MSM and transgender individuals today. Very few heterosexual uh, actually are on PrEP in France. TAF-FTC is not approved for PrEP at this time. So we only use tdfftc ftc and we actually are fortunate enough to have generate drugs. So the cost of Generic TDF-FTC is very attractive. I used to say it, it's even cheaper than condoms today in Paris because the one month of daily TDF-FTC, if you get the drug at the hospital pharmacy, is only worth 10 euros, so probably less than $10. And, um, you know, in terms of daily or on-demand for MSM, uh, we are split, and it's 50-50. So it's upon, you know, a patient's will, and we explain how to use on-demand daily, what are the preferences, and they could actually switch from one to the other regimen um, uh, You know, uh, every time we see these people. So I would say right now, in France overall, uh, among MSM, 50% use TDF FTC on-demand, 50% daily. And the uh, cohort data we have, we have a, an ongoing study with the uh, ENRS, uh, the study was started in 2017. It's still ongoing. And after three years, you know, the incidence of HIV in both arms is very low. And um, we don't see uh, any difference between the two regimen in terms of uh, HIV incidence. So it seems like, you know, they are equally potent to uh, prevent HIV infection and the rate of HIV uh, infection in this court is very low. It's, we see a few breakthrough infection only in people actually who were non-adherent to the prescribed regimen.
0: Yeah, thanks, Jean-Michel. You know, and I think it's really on the strength of your Prevenir data that I think the panel in general has become so increasingly comfor- comfortable with the on-demand dosing experience and your incredibly low incidence rates in that population, um, that, that it's sort of elevated to, um, uh, to, to that, that sort of high-level recommendation on parallel with daily oral TDF FTC. Uh, you know, of course, we don't in the U.S. have FDA approvals for use in that way. And the CDC has not endorsed it. And we're one of the few groups that has endorsed it in the U.S. Of course, the WHO has as well. And, and I'm wondering, Susan, in San Francisco, you, you guys in, and, and New York have been sort of, sort of fairly unique jurisdictions in, in recommending it. What are you seeing about uptake in, in San Francisco of on-demand use?
2: It's uh It seems to be increasing all the time. Now, not all uh, providers are yet comfortable prescribing it. Um, those providers that are comfortable prescribing it and who offer it, it's still probably, I'm guessing, around a third who are taking it up. But I would say that with COVID in particular, more and more people seem to be switching to 2-1-1 PrEP. Um uh because their sexual encounters are less frequent and it it just makes for uh an easier regimen to use when you're not having frequent sexual practices so um but it it's it's definitely taking off here in a way that I think it's not uh taken off necessarily in the rest of the
0: country yet yeah, Susan that's so interesting. I'd love to hear from other panelists in, who are in other regions if if it is taking off in their regions at all. The thing that in LA that we hear the most people who want to sort of think about using um TDF FTC in that way is is they're having a hard time finding, you know, um patient-friendly instructions about how you do it. how you operationalize it and you know our clinic has worked on that modeled on something you guys um, provided, but um, I, I, it seems to be sort of a, a, a sort of a, a need for for patients who are interested in using it that way. I'm wondering if you found that or, or anyone else on the panel have you heard that from from patients that they're interested but don't quite know how to do it
2: we We also have been giving out uh, directions and actually at one of the clinics they have uh, uh, particular reminders that are used. We're in the process of developing an app that can help people use, uh, 211 prep more effectively because you do have to remember when did you take your last dose? When are you supposed to take your next dose? Um, it's, it's not a completely clear and straightforward, uh, um, regimen. So it does require a little bit of education. Um, and we do have some materials that we patterned off of what Jean-Michel has done in Paris. Um,
0: so I think everybody's been borrowing from everybody else. How about others on the panel? Do you get requests for
3: two on prep? Yeah, very much so. And you get requests and even if you don't get requests, the pace frequently as the a participant the, the, the person said, well, I'm gonna do this right? I'm, my friend is doing it. I just want to know exactly how to do it. but there's there's interest because they they heard about it and others are doing it. So I do think that you know, It's unfortunate that CDC and others haven't approved it and recommended because it's already a practice out there and it's already happening. And I think having clear guidance is really important.
4: Yeah. um, This is Raj. I like Dr. Bookbinder. In the era of COVID, I've I've been actually recommending it even more commonly than I did in the past because people, for the reason she said, are, you know, having less frequent sex and and it doesn't make that much sense to me to take it two, three months at a time daily if, if if the sexual encounters are, you know, every couple of weeks. And so um so I, I think that um more of my patients are now taking 211 than they were a year or two ago. It is, as I think people keep saying they'll really studied only in, in MSM uh, or at least should not be used in cisgender women, let's put it that way.
0: Yeah thanks Raj. I, th- I think it's really interesting the sort of scale up of interest during the COVID era um, uh, and, you know, there's this big debate about whether or not we're seeing more risk or less risk in the COVID era. Are people sort of sequestering and not having sexual activity, or are people sheltering in place together, and there actually is more cohorted um, sexual activity? And I think there's some evidence for both, and I think it's very provocative. Um, I think the biggest challenge, of course, is being able to plan for that sexual activity as a requisite um, for the, being able to leverage the power of the 2-1-1 dosing. Um, there is a question in the chat that, that people, um, a- are asking, um, you know, how do you sort of prescribe it? Um, and I'd love to hear what others do. Our guidance, um, and what I have done is I prescribe it and monitor it in the same way I would as if it were being taken daily, because I think the power of it is depending on the frequency of sexual activity. You can sort of either have more limited use around a single planned episode or more chronic use, which sort of devolves into daily use um, if the sexual activity continues. And so you have to assume that somebody could need um, a, a, a full three-month supply, um, uh, you know, at that quarterly monitoring interval. Are others doing things that are different?
1: Well, that's exactly what we do. I mean, we, we see patients at the same Frequency, whether we give them daily or on-demand prep, um, and uh, you know we we want to to continue to monitor HIV and STIs, and, and actually during COVID we've seen uh, quite a significant drop in STIs rates uh, among people with HIV. We've seen also a few um, HIV infections, but uh, mostly among people not on prep um, still. So you know not everyone. And, um, you know, in, um, among the MSM community in Paris is using PrEP or knows about PrEP. So we still need to, you know, advertise PrEP more than we do today. And um, it's a shame to see these young uh, or not so young MSM, you know, getting HIV and not knowing about PrEP.
0: Yeah, I I, I think, no, go ahead, Raj, sorry. I
4: was just going to ask Jean-Michel on the era of lockdown. Um, are you having any success of um, having Patient collected um, uh, sampling for media gonorrhea, et cetera. Um, we have not had too much success in Boston, but in the United States, regional variations and maybe the folks in California can comment on patient collected uh, specimens. But what about in Paris?
1: Well, we, we did that uh, within a study, not uh, in routine care. So within a study, it worked quite well. You know, then there is a cost of, uh, you know, sending the samples. Uh, but the, the acceptability was very high in the study we, we conducted. So clearly, you know, uh, then you you have, you have to uh, to set up the organization to, to do that. But uh, um, it, it seems like uh, quite attractive for people.
3: As we, you know, similar here in Atlanta, we've done under Aaron Siegler's leadership a prep at home uh, uh, study. And it works well with this, you know, sort of boxes that, that he has developed that have all the tools and a video and everything what to do to collect your samples and and to do your HIV and to through your, your blood that you can submit your blood spot for the HIV testing and submitting everything by mail and then you can mail your drugs. So it, it is, opens the opportunity to do sort of palette prep and, and, and the testing. But again, I go back to what we said, what I said before. We're simply not being able to do STD testing right now. So it really is irrelevant on how you collect it because we're not getting STD testing on our patients because of COVID. I mean, there's just not so often there's not just, you know, reagents. So everybody's being used for COVID, which means we're not doing STD testing. We're being told to go back to syndromic approach.
0: So Carlos, that's really interesting. You know, and I, I wonder if there's also some regional variation on that availability because you know, we had a brief period of time where that was certainly true in Los Angeles, but it's it's not currently. So I wonder if there are regional um, differences in uh, availability. It certainly would be frustrating to need to be forced to go back to purely syndromic management since we know so many of these STIs are asymptomatic. Right. And the sort of one of the powers of the a PrEP program is the ability to interrupt that cycle early um, with the asymptomatic testing and diagnosis. Um, I, uh, there's a question in the chat about whether some of the commercial labs um, have increased their willingness to do three-site testing to allow more remote um, video visit management of PrEP. And um, I have heard of some of the commercial labs increasing their willingness to do it now that there is an FDA-cleared um, uh, uh, extra genital Um, uh, assay that's approved in the US, but I do think there's variability. Have others had success with any of the commercial labs being willing to do pharyngeal and rectal testing now that there is an FDA cleared um, assay? Silence. We have not
5: had any problems with that. So both Quest and LabCorp have done that. Um, our biggest problem, as Carlos said, is not being able to get the swabs to do any testing at all. And, and I would just mention that there may be some regional variation, but I've actually done some informal chatting with people across the country who are HIV uh, folks who actually are, are seeing the same thing. So I do think um, we're being told it is a national shortage uh, in the major commercial labs. So I do think this is a, a major concern. And, you know, by the way, if this is something that is driven by COVID, it would be a great way to use the Defense Production Act to uh, actually increase the number of swabs that we have, not just for COVID, but that would have a ripple effect on, on lots of things like uh, STI testing, but far to me, far from me to recommend anything regarding policy, but.
0: No, Melanie, please continue to advocate for policy. I think that's critical. And I think that's a really great point. So thanks for, for bringing it up. Um, Maybe we while did
4: Dr. Th- Thompson has the microphone for a minute, if, if you don't mind. Um, she just issued some guidelines from HIVMA on, on primary care of people with HIV just for a moment. Do you still endorse urine analyses and people on TAF? Uh, Melanie, one of the questions in the chat was, um, should, should people keep getting UAs if they're getting treated with HIV with TAF? What are the primary care common- we,
5: guidelines? We do. Um, I, I don't think there is a lot of evidence, basically, to, to rule one way or another on that. Um, I know that a lot of people have stopped doing that in people who are on TAF and who have apparently stable renal function. Um, you know, unfortunately, in many populations, there are lots of reasons to monitor urine uh, because of comorbidities, hypertension, uh, diabetes, and so on. And, you know, we have so many patients uh, in the South who have comorbidities and are, are taking PrEP that, you know, it gets a little confusing, but but we have not said that you should stop doing UAs in patients on TAF. And and thanks for plugging the guidelines, by the way. I'll plug a little bit more to say the HIV primary care guidelines, we hope, will be published very, very, very soon, like maybe even um, sometime next week, maybe.
0: So keep an Some eye out on Melanie's Facebook. Twitter. If you don't follow her on Twitter, please do. Um, uh, and she'll At put her... She'll put her Twitter in the chat. <laughs> um uh, I, but I think that's a very nice segue to uh, probably um the second most controversial or discussed, I shouldn't say controversial issue um in the guidelines, which was how to position TAF FTC as a prep agent um uh, at least for non vaginal exposures. I think everyone's aware that the u s FDA did grant regulatory approvals. To daily oral TAF FTC, um, for non-vaginal, uh, exposures, um, as a PrEP agent last October. And, um, it's getting a fair amount of attention in, um, sort of the, the marketing airwaves. Um, and, uh, and a lot of patients are asking about it because of a perception that's out there that um certainly in the treatment arena there's um there are data to support that there are clinically meaningful safety uh, advantages in a renal and bone context to using taf over tdf ftc um and and does do those safety advantages similarly apply in the prevention context to people who are not living with hiv and how do we triage the thought process of um though the the ultrasensitive laboratory measurements of a salutary uh, creatinine clearance profile and DEXA measurements of a salutary bone profile with LDL disadvantages and weight increases um, as we think about these agents. And of course, the fact that as Jean-Michel was alluding to, generic TDF FTC now available in the United States. Um, and and so how do we think about that? And, you know, the panel's recommendation came down uh, on recommending TDF FTC as a first-line agent with TAF FTC as an agent that may be appropriate in certain high-risk settings with people with pre-existing renal disease, um, certainly with creating clearances between 30 and 60 or at risk or pre-existing osteopenia or osteoporosis. But I'm wondering how are people on the panel in clinical practice making those decisions and having those conversations with patients as they ask about it?
6: Uh,
3: this is Davey. Thanks. Um, I have this conversation more than I thought I was ever
0: going to have. Um, but <laughs> I noticed a lot of patients, uh, are totally happy with TDF. Uh, but some that are, uh, very concerned about the bone issue want to have lots of questions about it. And usually they walk away, not necessarily, uh, demanding TAF. But I have noticed that I use it. Uh, I have a few patients who have some, um, Bone issues and some creatinine clearances that started to bump up, and they all had other pre-existing conditions, and I and I, I did switch them over to um, TAF face prep. You know, wh- what are what are others doing? And uh, you know, I'll just while people are thinking about that, I, I find myself gravitating to Julia Marcus's infographic. If anyone hasn't seen it, you know, Google Julia Marcus um Taf FDC infographic it's brilliant um and, and I have it printed out and laminated and I I go over it with with patients and and what we what we know to date um about the various considerations of both agents and then I sort of say to people what would you like to do after that conversation and I'll I'll share that after having that kind of detailed conversation it has been a a case report level situation where someone has said yeah, I still want TAF FTC. What are others' experience?
2: I think most people are, uh, are willing. We, we say that we're actually recommending TDF FTC for first-line prep unless there's a reason to uh, that somebody needs to take TAF. Um and so uh in general people I think again, I think Julia Marcus's uh infographic is really helpful in laying things out and in, in describing, you know, for instance, the bone mineral density, that we didn't see any clinical difference um in uh in bone disease uh in people who were taking PrEP uh with TDF FTC. And similarly with the renal diseases, if somebody doesn't have preexisting conditions that might predispose them to re- having renal disease. I think people in general have been, um, there are exceptions, but people in general are willing to take TDF, FTC, especially since that it, we say that's our recommendation, but we do have a conversation about it.
6: Yeah, and one of the things that actually came up in the Q&A that the audience sent in was about the safety um, And is there a difference in terms of bone mineral density and the answer is yes there's a little bit of difference but may the big issue here is that first off DEXA scans weren't really developed for people who are 25 years old i mean the the standards and normality of it is for older folks and and so when you see a little bit of a change in bone mineral mineral density which is observed um, the question is what is its clinical meaning and I think, in the opinion of the panel, as we sat around, the answer to that question was not much. Um, I, I think you framed it really well, Rafi, when you said it's it's really all about relative assessment of an individual's person risk per, uh, risk for especially renal uh, issues. But if there's not much risk there, then the TDFFTC works just fine. And I'm not finding, at least in our practices uh, here in Alabama, that that's been a big push. But it may be. Geographically different.
0: Yeah, the um, th- there's a there's a, a great question here from in the Q and A about what about teens and young exo- adults who sort of are 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 traditionally challenged by adherence, still accruing bone mineral density, you know, um, and and also maybe challenged by the large pill size. And I think it, th- those are really important considerations and contribute to the individualization. Of the conversation with someone, right? You know, there's some pharmacokinetic data that suggests that based on intracellular levels, perhaps we're gonna find that TAF FTC is more forgiving to non-adherents. I don't think we really have the answer to that question yet. So I I'm I'm loath to jump to that as a reason. I do think there's a small subset of people who pill size is an issue. Um, um, and and that may be something that tips in the balance. Um, a favoring using TAF FTC. And and I think it's an important point to remember that while we do say that the DEXA changes that we see in adults to revert to baseline six months off TDF FTC prep, the one population in whom that wasn't true was young adults, adults and adolescents. Um, so they don't return to baseline. So this question is still a lingering one, about bone effects and people accruing mass. But again, no data about different clinical outcomes to drive us. So so it's a little bit of a challenge.
6: So, briefly, so we have about three or four minutes left. And I think a good segue from that question you just asked from the audience about what might be an option for an adherence. What about long-acting injectables when they become available?
0: what about them mike sag so you know i think a lot of people were um surprised happy raised an eyebrow um when they saw that we recommended um uh long-acting injectable cabotegravir for msm and trans women um should it achieve regulatory approvals and become available and, you know, full disclaimer, um, I was heavily involved in that study. So, um, it perhaps it would be most appropriate for me to sort of turn it over to Susan or Jean-Michel or, or Mike, if you want to comment about some of the factors that went into our prioritizing that is something really we really wanted to highlight in these guidelines. And then I can, I'm happy to chime in with from a study perspective, but perhaps I should for for equity and, and lack of bias, turn it over to others to lead that conversation?
1: Well, I, you know, I, I think we've learned with uh, the treatment of HIV that patients, when they tested long-acting agents, are really uh, very happy with that. So I, I think, you know, once it's going to be available and people will test it, they will adopt it, um, at least some of them. So I think it's great to have a, a new option with the. Uh, you know, it's a single drug, single agent. That's also nice. Uh, the safety looks uh, great, and so you know, I, I think uh, uh, the experience we have again with uh, the treatment of HIV is uh, quite uh, quite good. So uh, people are, you know, uh, really asking for it. So uh, let's see what it, what happens with uh, cabotegravir for prep. But I'm quite optimistic.
6: Yeah, I think just to share with the audience and kind of go inside baseball here, of how this was debated amongst the panelists is that we looked at the evidence, and I think everybody was impressed, as you just heard. The problem was the drug wasn't released yet, but we knew that these guidelines would not be updated for another two years or so. So we decided to jump ahead of it a little bit, including uh, discussions about some of the uh, Toxicity is issue. I think the one thing that is worth mentioning, because we really only do have about a minute 24 seconds left, is the issue of resistance potentially. If there's uh, given, and then three months later, nothing else is done. So maybe uh, the, the experts on the panel uh, can talk about that as we wrap this section up.
4: If you could say that, and also say what you think about women, where the study is ongoing. Maybe those are the two last things for you to finish up with. Maybe Rafee is fine.
0: Yeah, thanks, Raj and Mike. So, um, you know, I think everyone is aware, um, that there is a sister study to HPTN 083 that is being done in cisgender women in Sub-Saharan Africa that was about a year later getting into the field than was 083. So it's about a year behind in results. And remember, 083 resulted in, in May of this year. The 084, um, is going, undergoing, um, its next, uh, review uh, by uh, um, Blind and Data Safety Monitoring Board in a couple of weeks, um, but it is ongoing and we don't know what's going to happen. Um, there may be a result, it may need to continue, but it's being studied. So we're optimistic and hopeful that a similar result will be seen for cisgender women, um, but we don't know yet. And, and the resistance question looms large. We don't yet have all the data, but certainly if um, acquiring HIV despite or in the context of cabotegravir use does um, lead to integrase class resistance, that's going to be important and have implications for first-line WHO um, uh, 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 treatment uh, recommendations and, and could have important consequences. So I, I think that's an unanswered but really important question that in order to appropriately balance and understand the risks um, and benefits of each modality, we really need before we can fully fully evaluate it. And with that, Mike, I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll send it back over to you. We did not get to a ton of the questions um, in the chat and we'll try and answer them for people um, even great. though we weren't able to do so live, but thank you so much everyone for putting in those questions. They're all really good and important questions.
6: Yeah. If y'all want to type in on those, as we go to end of break, uh, then we can clear them out. That'd be great. Thank you. So thanks everyone. I think that was a wonderful discussion and, and, uh, I think it helps a lot. I think just to add to that last comment that once somebody gets an injection with cabotegravir and the PK, there's a nice peak and then there's a very prolonged what's called tail or as the drug is eliminated. And if the, if that tail extends for two or three months and somebody gets exposed theoretically, uh, there could be the breeding of resistance and that's the concern. So we're going to take a another 20 minute break. Um, we'll be coming back at 10 minutes until the hour, um, 15 minutes after the previous hour. Um, and Dr. Gandhi will lead us in a discussion of COVID, or an overview of it, a brief discussion. And then uh, Dr. Hoy will be joining us from Australia to lead a discussion on something that is brand new in the guidelines. This, this go-round is about how to manage patients as they age with HIV. So we'll take our break and be back in 20 minutes.